One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Alison Rudd of The Times and Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. Just like to begin with a word of thanks to the Football Supporters Federation. Fans have nominated us as Podcast of the Year. That means a lot. Thanks. You can vote through the website fsf.org.uk forward slash vote. Now, in a way, it's a timely reminder of the role fans play in the modern game. They're taken for granted, kept in the dark. But without them, the game is nothing. Problem is, big clubs don't really care, do they? <laughs> well, they ought to. And I, I, you're, I think you're, 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 you're referring to all these leaks that have come out through, through uh, Super League and, and so on, yeah. and which it does paint a picture of very... Wealthy, powerful men, mostly in dark corridors, having conversations where bottom of the list would be what all that they discuss means to the fan base. It's about uh, maintaining your position in the elite. That's the most important thing. So if you're already in the top echelon, you have to make sure you stay there. Uh, And it's about making sure you get more revenue than anybody else. So the rich just want to become richer. And uh, that sounds like a bit like a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale where they're the baddies, but that's the way the real world works. And I would suggest that stories about um, a Super League are actually not leaks that would embarrass the rich clubs, but might even have been engineered by them because that gives the fans something to focus on as the big bad wolf, the thing they don't want. You won't find any current manager, player, fan saying, oh, I really want a European Super League. They all know that. But the the spectre of it allows the average fan, a person who who saves up for a season ticket, to accept a lot that they find distasteful about the game because it might stave off the prospect of a Super League. It's there as the thing that should really scare you, so go along with every, every other change we might, we might make to make our position in the game bigger. Mm. Taking everything that Ali says, Daniel, isn't it time to rage against the machine? Yeah, I think it, it probably is, but I, I think you could probably have made the same argument 5, 10, 15, 25 years ago. This, you know, The formation of the Premier League was a product of greed. Um, we've all grown to love and all lump it. But 
it's just another it's, it's just another step along that road i think I, I do think we probably need to um do you think it's a real thing yeah i think we, i, I I think when we talk about fans and we talk about the big clubs looking after fans, I think what they're ignoring the interests of is match-going supporters. I think there's a big difference now between match-going supporters and fans around the world. I suspect that if you, if you surveyed 100% of you Manchester United fans around the world, I strongly suspect that a large majority of those fans would welcome European Super League. But I suspect that the large majority of the match-going supporters would think it's the worst idea they could envisage. But it's whether Manchester United and others care enough about the match-going supporters over the wants and the revenue and the potential merchandising stream of, of those fans abroad who, you know, if they play computer games against each other, they always play Manchester United against Real Madrid or Manchester United against Juventus because that's what they consider a big game and they would love to watch on television more of those. These are not fans that have grown up with Saturday 3pm going to the ground and whoever Manchester United are playing this week were excited about the game. They're excited about the biggest games in the sport. And that's what's most galling for, for fans who do pay the money for season tickets and do have to scrimp and save to go to games because it just feels like they are being continually deprioritised. Mm. And, you know, what is envisaged? And I, and I, you know, on balance, probably agree with you that it is a convenient distraction to talk about this, uh, is, you know, we've got, a situation where what they're, what they're presenting is, is a closed shop. Now, that might work in American sport like the NFL or the, uh, Major League Baseball, where there is much more of a competitive balance, and, you know, they, and they work at that. We've got a Premier League, which is becoming more elitist. I don't see... I, you know, I, I see us getting to the point where people are going to turn away from football at the highest level and reconnect at a lower level, a community level. If the, I agree, if that's the choice that eventually is presented to lovers of football, you can go to a game where, for example, they're not, I don't know, the equivalent of a League One game now, and you know that on the line is a rele it's a relegation six-pointer, and you know that, that, that there'll be oh, great banter, great songs, there'll be blood and thunder on the pitch, it will matter, you know, there might be sackings if it goes wrong everything matters and you can choose between that scenario and a exhibition effectively an exhibition match between Juventus and AC Milan or whatever it is but where it doesn't nothing matters but the amount of money being paid for it to be screened around the world what what where would you rather be and indeed where would you if you're a British fan what would you want to tune in to see because if we do tune into um overseas games that do not involve our local teams now it's because we know they matter it's because it's a important game in a champions league group game or or we know that you know there's a chance psg might lose today it it, it matters if it if it is just a succession of exhibition games which is what is essentially a european super league would be it's going to be in theory it's a two-tier thing where one group never suffer relegation and another group can be invited in from time to time it's so it's the antithesis of, of competitive sports, and I don't. It might mean that more people will turn their back on that sort of football and go to the clubs that do have something to strive for, i.e., promotion or survival, or are scared of relegation. But I don't. It's a roundabout way of getting your local club to get support. You know. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm all for militancy, and, and, and you know, my view would be. Yeah, go away and form your European Super League. Mm. But your B team's not going to be allowed in the Premier League. 
the Premier League, you know, by dint of commercial success, is lucrative. Yeah, you know, go and form your own. You know, go and play with your own ball in another field. Yeah. I think that's a a slightly idealistic thought. It's one that I hold as well. I must say, but I I do think there's a danger of that being slightly idealistic. I remember back. There was a few weeks ago. Um, it was when the Ryder Cup golf was on. Sky made the decision to for their Sunday game was was Burnley Cardiff, and I remember seeing on social media and even amongst friends, oh, it's Burnley Cardiff on. So I think we have been slightly indoctrinated to this idea that we need a big team on television for the game to be absorbing or interesting. Mm. And thats I don't think that makes any comment on our support. I think it is indoctrination. I think we've been told that we need the biggest teams because the biggest teams are the ones that hold all the power. The Premier League is in, incredibly lucrative, but let's not pretend that part of that you know, part of that money-making ability is not reliant upon having the best teams, the best managers, some of the best players. <sighs> I do worry that the Premier League is is my worry is that the Premier League becomes more dented by a European Super League than those big clubs would. Even if we do say, no, go on, take your take your ball, go and play with it. You're not having B teams in this league. My worry is that the Premier League suffers more than those teams would, and that makes me very sad. Mm. Let's get a, a sort of view from from the fans, if you like. There's some, some questions from the viewers and the listeners. Um, I think Jeremy Bowling was on your wavelength. Ali, you know, he says, do you think the announcement of a potential European Super League is a classic worst case gambit? So when they announce that the Champions League is going to move to weekends, we all breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah, he's, he's uh, off the same page there, isn't he, slightly. I, you could, I mean, you could make a case that we're already living in a European Super League. A bit like the Truman Show and we don't really know it. Um, <laughs> the big clubs get most things their own way. And if the prospect of something far, almost too elite to be palatable is out there, it makes life easier for them, I think. I mean, if you just pair it back, it makes no sense at all for the TV companies to keep having to give extra money to the bigger clubs when they know if you keep on feeding financially the clubs that do not need it, you are going to by definition, take away money from the clubs that could really do just, just a fraction more to make them more competitive, which makes the product more competitive and therefore more exciting, and therefore longer term, what you're giving people, whether you're UEFA or a TV outlet or the Premier League or the FA, whoever you are, what you're giving the people is something far more exciting if you make sure you nourish financially everyone that's part of it. So in a sense, the fact that isn't happening means that we're already part of we're allowing an elite to exist because they do dominate these discussions. Mm. There's geopolitics at work here as well, isn't there? Jordan Orb makes the point, um, if FIFA go ahead with their Club World Championship idea, will UEFA stand up to them and threaten to break away from FIFA, i.e. no European teams at the World Cup and they'll expand the Euros? Uh, that's a very well. Maybe it isn't a doomsday scenario. My doomsday scenario is that that UEFA and FIFA are, uh, suddenly, unusually, become on the same page on the issue, and that the the, the Super League um, provides teams to the Club World Cup, and it, it becomes one feeds into the other in the same way that the Premier League feeds into the Champions League now. Um, add in B teams fueling Super League squads, uh, and that's just about my worst case scenario. And I. <laughs> my suspicion is that the worst case scenario is probably not a long way off reality. 
given what we've seen in the last week and what is being discussed so, um, so I say openly obviously it's leaked documents but it is being discussed so readily between mm. clubs from from different countries I just well certainly you know, I, I was at Barcelona doing some research for a book and uh, you know they were talking openly there about wanting the Champions League to be on a Saturday mm. it made sense in a marketing sense you know in, a, in an audience sense um, but I suppose to, to carry on this argument about the fans you know, Billy has, has come on he's saying look Given that match day ticket sales now account for such a small percentage of a club's revenue, why are ticket prices so high? Are we all mugs? Well, they're only high because people buy them. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. you, a lot of tourism packages are geared around buy, buy this flight, go to this hotel, and you get these pair of tickets to this game, and that really make sure the prices go up and you will go to most grounds most grounds in the premier league will be sold out now and it's just supply and demand if you can if you can sell them for that amount you will there is i think a tipping point at which if you've got too many too many day trippers who spent a lot of money they're very keen to be there but that you know I, I went i did a piece where i went and met the people who'd spent an absolute fortune getting very expensive flights from hong kong to come to a game and how much it, it was phenomenal what it cost them and their weekend that was centered on the match which was nice because they'd never seen a premier league match before it was a dream and they'd maybe taken a bit of shopping as well but they were they were sort of learning how to sing the songs and they were they were more concerned at making sure they got 300 photographs rather than really participating and their photographs were also about taking photographs of other fans and I was like but, but the people around you are probably not real fans either you'll be taking photographs of of of, of tourists <laughs> from, from Stockholm you know yeah. it, 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 it can get too ridiculous and again if we're talking about long term the product will suffer if grounds are not mostly full of people who do know the songs and do know the history and will cry where are you going to get the? When are you going to get those? You know, pictures of the little boy sobbing his heart out, which every producer, every director of every football highlight show needs, if it's full of tourists from Stockholm and New York. So you've you've got to be careful that you do care about the fans. Um, some clubs are careful to make sure they make sure a certain percentage are affordable, and that needs to carry on. Mm. The, the problem is, is that one of the problems is, is that, that as supporters we are so kind of ripe for exploitation because we are so proudly loyal. You know, you get you get bizarre, ironic situations where the worse fans are treated, the more they say, "Well, this is my club. I'll be going every week, and I'll be supporting the team." And and to do that, you have to spend money and you have to pay the price you're asked. And Alice is absolutely right. It's it's completely supply and demand because for every three you know, for every three supporters or three tourist sports sitting there, there's a you know, there's a queue of seven, eight, nine behind them that would pay exactly the same money to take that seat, and and they're the ones that are queuing up for the seats because they're the only ones that can afford it. Yeah. Two more um, questions, which actually sort of um, you know meld into each other. Really, Mark Colley talks about what about the detachment of players and clubs from fans. The Bundesliga have open training sessions most days, and their players at the end of the game come up to the fans properly and thank them. On the same lines, Will Denny says, it annoys me that after a game, players don't come over to the fans and interact. Moments like that mean so much to young fans. Do you get the point? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, when I see, and it does happen, it's not like this never happens. I, I've been at many matches where the players make a point of, you know, I think it really matters when they've lost as well and they've got the travelling support there. That is when you really have to go over to them and say, we you know, try and say we gave our best, but thank you so much for being here. And it is a bit sad that when you get a player... Was it Hazard who gave his shirt over to someone because they had a little sign saying, yeah. please give me your shirt? Now there's little signs everywhere. That shouldn't be a one-off. It should be It should be that every shirt is given to a, a young fan in the away end every time or something. It, I, there is no downside to doing it. Yeah. There, is only there was a lad on social media who, who was really proud at the weekend and he had uh, you know, that appalling sort of light pink shirt that United had. But it, was, <laughs> it was Rashford had given him the shirt and the look on this kid's yeah. face was fantastic. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, if you were cynical you, and you were in a, an office trying to do publicity stunts and how to do a positive gift for your club, you'd say, well, we need that. We need a picture of someone holding up Rashford's shirt. Especially if it's the new pink one. That, you know, I mean, it, it, it's a win-win. And then the idea that you, the players trudge off and there's a sense of a disconnect, that, that shouldn't even be in the vocabulary. The, the, every fan who has gone there, especially away fans, you know, it's the whole day. It costs a fortune sometimes. It's really inconvenient. You have to get up at the crack of dawn and you're not home. It, it, it's a proper commitment. And I think fans who do that feel we're all in this together. And they know the players probably flew to the ground or got posh bus, but they want to feel that they're a family. It takes so little for the players to remember that. Right, let's be radical and talk about football, shall we? <laughs> it's, you know, it's, a, it's a great, another Champions League week. You know, Daniel, you're going to Italy for a couple of days. You're seeing the Barca Inter game and, and uh, Juve Man United. Um, how is the Champions League shaping up? In, you know, who are the runners and riders really impressed you? Uh, I, I think Barcelona are probably favourites. Um, I think there is a, a real sense in Barcelona that, that Leo Messi, um, it's no coincidence that he's won Champions League trophy behind Cristiano Ronaldo. And that sort of thing matters in a game that was becoming increasingly individualistic. But even, even in the team sense, there is a, a real drive to win Messi one more Champions League trophy. Um, there is a sense within the club that he is... Um, you know him dipping from his peak, you know, only brings him back to mere mortals. But he, that he is slightly beyond his peak now. Uh, so I think there's a huge swell there. And and the other two clubs are obviously Paris Saint-Germain, Paris Saint-Germain and, and Manchester City. And um, that comes from sheer financial might and comes from um, potential domestic competitions in which they may again find their title challenge becoming a little bit of a canter. But have they impressed you? Have City and Paris Saint-Germain impressed you in the Champions League this season? Because I, I, I think, they've, again, they've looked like, why aren't they as good as I they think, should be? Yeah, I think I'm almost at the stage now where I think, and, and it's not what UEFA want to hear, is that I'm almost drawing a line on the Champions League group stage. I'm almost yeah. saying, now, as long as they get through, let's just leave it at that. Because some of the game, you know, I watched... Saint-Germain against Red Star, and it, it was farcical. It was absolutely farcical. And then they go and, you know, they lose to, to, to Liverpool and lose Liverpool 3-2, and I think, well, maybe this, maybe these are not all it. But then they suddenly have this ability to turn it on in moments of matches and score goals in two or threes in 10 or 15 minutes, and I think, well, maybe the group stage just doesn't matter. But obviously they've got to get through. But, yeah, they're the, they're the three I would think are probably the strongest. You see, I probably agree. I, you know, I think it's almost an extension of the cynicism. OK, well, we're going to qualify. Let's just ease the way through it. Uh, I mean, especially at a time when they've got 
to try and make their statement of intent within the Premier League, which obviously City did yesterday, you know, beating you know pretty poor Southampton team 6-1. Um, I found Pep Guardiola really interesting after that, talking in, in quite strange terms about um, Raheem Sterling being scared. What did you make of that? Well, we seem to be playing, let's play cynicism hat. OK, <laughs> to be cynical, I would say, and this is being very cynical, that it's a way of saying, look what my coaching has done. He was scared, he was getting into position and then making the wrong choice or maybe being startled rabbity. But we've worked with him and uh, under my tutelage, he's learnt to add that to his game, the ability to be ruthless and make the right decision. Otherwise, I don't see why you'd say it. Or unless you're just trying to point out, which I think is true, is that Raheem Sterling, I am very impressed with the progress he has made because mm. it's been all about his potentially hugely lucrative contract extension, the news this week. And looking at him this season, he definitely is a player who was already excellent and you know, for his age, incredibly impressive. But he has... And, and when, you, when you're around that age, it's so easy to drop off, to let success go to your head, wealth go to your head. It's not. He has, And I loved his post-match comments about the way he felt about Sane and how he, he wanted, you know, he felt happier being able to give him a pass for a goal and score a hat-trick. That is a sign of a young man rising above a lot of the criticism he received, which is unfounded, and um, becoming, becoming a proper, proper team player in, in one of the best teams you'll see. Yeah, I know you were taking notes yesterday, Daniel. <laughs> um, I think the last one I saw from you was 43 goals that he's either mm. assisted or scored in the last since last season. Mm. Um, you know, two goals yesterday, another three assists. Yet some people still want to look for flaws in him, don't mm. they? Yeah, they do. And, you know, my turn to be cynical. That's something that we, we are quite often guilty of in this country and especially with sporting stars, I think. Um, there is no need for Raheem Sterling to be anything other than a good news story at the moment, I don't think. The, the Even if the argument is that Pep Guardiola has created a system in which he has a very distinct role, and that distinct role is scoring and assisting goals. You know, he's tasked with getting in the six-yard box for the pullbacks, and you know, I'd say probably half of his goals since the start of last season have been within eight yards of, of goal. This is the most competitive attack in world football to get a place in, and he has become undroppable within that attack. So for all the for all the compliments of Guardiola creating the system, we have to compliment Raheem Sterling for being such an integral part of it. And yeah, as I say, I don't think there's any reason for it to be anything other than a good news story. And and anyone looking to do anything else is is, to my mind, looking a little bit too hard. Mm. Yeah. Again, when we were talking about Super League, we've got a game which almost defines English football on Sunday in terms of you know, the Manchester derby. Um, City, obviously, on the up. Um, what about De Bruyne? That's the only thing that's, that's almost like halting their you know, transcendent optimism, really, where is he ominously unlucky with injuries? Well, he's had a rough period and he's out for another six weeks now, isn't he? But if you, take, if you ignore the, how it might feel from, for him personally... What it has meant is that um, Bernardo Silva has blossomed. So, you know, one bad thing happens, there's a good thing waiting in the wings. I mean, it's all very well pointing to a club and saying, oh, they have great depth and, uh, you know, their bench is as strong as who's starting. But what you, 
you can say that, but do those players actually make a difference when they're allowed to come through because of suspension or injury? And at City, they have been. So, I obviously, I, I, it's disappointing that De Bruyne fights his way back from an injury and then gets another one. But from City's point of view, that they've more they've absorbed it, but absorbed it seamlessly. I, I, it it will not impact their season another six weeks without De Bruyne. What about United, um, Daniel? So you're, you're, you're seeing them in Italy. Mm. Um, do we need to start giving them a little bit more credit in terms of, you know, they're gutting out results, aren't they? I think it certainly shows that there is still a, a will and a belief, not just in themselves, but we have to say behind the manager as well. Um, this does not look in the second half of games like a team that's given up the ghost on the manager. Um, but... Jose Mourinho will talk up the, the positive impacts, of, of course he will, but they, their first half performances are pretty dismal. It was dismal again against Bournemouth on Saturday. It was dismal against Newcastle. It, I think five times this year, they've in 2018, they've, they've come from behind to win a Premier League game. Now that's brilliant, that shows great resilience, but I don't think Manchester City have been behind five times in a Premier League game this year. So it, there's clearly a flip side to that. And, and until Manchester United produce a complete performance... I don't think we can trust them against against high-class opposition. And, and that's what we have to judge them against. We can't judge them against Bournemouth. We can't judge them against Newcastle. We have to judge them against teams like Juventus. And they were awful pretty much throughout the home leg or the home tie against Juventus until the last maybe 15, 20 minutes. And I, I expect the same again in, in Turin. And Chris, Chris Smalling said at the weekend that um, the whole of the United team have been in awe of... Juventus. So, given that, I don't know, on balance, maybe Manchester City are a slightly better team. Mm. They're a slightly better team this season. What are they going to, what are they, what are they going to turn, up, turn up and face City and go, uh -huh. yeah. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say. They're Manchester United. Yeah. But do they feel like Manchester United? Well, I... Oh. Do you mean, do, do I think the players feel like they're playing for Manchester United or do they look like Manchester United? Do they United? look like Manchester United? In some respects, they do because they have that. Um, like you said, there is there is that. I mean, although you don't want to be in that situation where you've played badly, you need to recover. There is, you know, I I, I was watching their game against Bournemouth, and someone said to me, "What do you think is going to happen?" I said, "Well, they're going to they're going to win it in the last minute." They have, and that that is an admirable characteristic. And they've always had that where you know you would never give up on the United team if they had obstacles or things went wrong. You still felt they could pull something out of a performance. That is very United, I think. But in most other respects, I mean, they look like United because they're expensive, expensively assembled. But in most, they don't, the football doesn't flow. There's so little pace. I think it's uh, more than slightly embarrassing that they're one of the slowest league, uh, set of players in the Premier League. I don't know what, what how that's been allowed to evolve. Um, they're sort of built on their height and strength and bulk as opposed to their ability to Football's changed. I feel a bit of an anachronism, to be quite honest. Mm. But to say, for a player to say, an intelligent player like Chris Moyne to say that they admit they were in awe of Juventus is is something, I don't know, Mourinho's going to have to work with that somehow and turn that into a, a pivotal point in the season so that they can somehow show acute arrogance against Manchester City. Mm. Mm. We've got someone like, you know, we were talking about Marcus Rashford earlier on. Um, is he almost like taking up the slack that's being left by a woefully out-of-form Lukaku. Yeah, I think he probably is. <laughs> Lukaku is a, is a very strange case in that 
He was left isolated for a long time at Manchester United by, you know, ostensibly by Alexis Sanchez's dismal form and, and Sanchez's purchase, meaning that the club didn't want to buy a, a right winger in the summer to service Lukaku. He's played far too much football for a, for a guy of his age and he looks bigger this season. He looks like his response to being fatigued was to try and kind of strengthen physically, whereas I think that's, that's the last thing he needed. Um, I think he's probably half broken in terms of his physical fitness, but Manchester United is not a club at the moment in a position where they can afford to have carry, you know, carry players because, as Alison says, the fluidity is not good enough that you know, a striker like Lukaku wasn't getting four or five half chances a game. Never mind, you know, you watch Liverpool play and you watch Tottenham play and even when they're not at their peak, Harry Kane and Mohamed Salah will have five, six shots a match and two or three of them will be presentable opportunities. Romelu Lukaku is getting that over the course of a month, not over the course of a game. So I like him. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm predisposed to, to defend him. But yeah, he's clearly woefully out of form and, and that's meant that others have had to step up. And so far, Anti Martial is the only one doing that. Mm. Let's look at Tottenham, Ali. Um... Their game against PSV will be their fourth in nine games. Sorry, nine days. Um, you know, we look at United. They've got a lot of bodies around the place. They look stretched almost by design. Um, would Tottenham be better giving up the ghost of the Champions League and just concentrating on domestic stuff? I, I think I think the Champions League's given up on them already. Actually, I mean it's going to take a very strange set of circumstances for them to still be in the competition after their next match. And I was in um, Eindhoven when they 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 threw it away against um, PSV. So, and at that point, Pochettino was more or less sounding like someone saying, "It's over. It's over. We we had our chance, our small chance, and we blew it." They are, there comes a point when you say, I don't know, I, th I think we might have drifted to the point now where we, we've come from praising Pochettino for bringing through young players, for um, remaining faithful to a small group, for backing the owner for not spending on players, for spending on the stadium instead, for saying he, he felt that that was... A positive rather than a negative. He could build unity. He was very happy with the, the squad he had. And suddenly it's all, it's all just, it just seems like it's falling apart again. They, you, you can't fight on the Champions League front and the Premier League front unless you've got essentially two, two, two squads, you know, a, a proper healthy squad you can put forward, cover in every position. And you need to mix it up a bit. You need experience as well as youth. Um, I, I don't know. There comes. I don't think we're at a tipping point now, where we either see Pochettino go somewhere where he has more resources, or he gets a bit feistier with the owner and starts, you know, ult ultimatuming to him. Because I mean, the fact that he he signed a new long-term contract a couple of days before the Real Madrid job came available meant I, felt, I think he had no. There was no, there was no one sniffing around. There was there was no one that sort of oh you know we need to make sure Pochettino's happy. So. Anyway, to answer your question, um, they won't have they won't have European football to worry about. Maybe they'd be quite happy to drop out of the Europa League and just 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 mm -hmm. just get back that sense of target one competition. Try and do well in it. Mm. Solari's sort of taken the reins temporarily, at least at, at Madrid. Mm -hmm. There is a logic to someone like Pochettino going there in the summer, isn't there? Yeah, I think this is 
it is the summer for Pochettino, if I'm honest. You know, I'm a big fan of that whole Tottenham project and I'll be sad to see him leave it. Um, but if you were going to pick two jobs in world football that would be most suited for Pochettino's next step, it would be Real Madrid and Manchester United. And if you were going to pick two super, you know, super clubs of world football where a job might be available next summer, you'd probably pick Real Madrid and Manchester United. So he could well have pick of the two jobs. If, I, if I'm in a position of power at either club, I think I would be in his ear or in his agent's ear very quickly um, because it is pretty clear that, you know, he said, it's a strange thing in that Tottenham have now won 10 of the last 13 away games in the Premier League. That's more than Manchester City have won. So, that, you know, everything's not fallen apart totally, but there's just this nagging sense that things are on the decline now. And if that's the case, this is the perfect time to get Pochettino. He said after, you know, he said after their last win that this is my worst moment in my Spurs time. And this is the only club that's finished in the top three for the last three seasons in a row. So he should be buoyant. But mm. yeah, it does just feel like things are slightly creaking. And it, yeah, as I say, if I was if I was high up at Real Madrid or Manchester United, I'd be right in his ear. But would Real Madrid wait for him? I think if Solari, if Solari can take them through to the end of the season, and, and, and let's be realistic, even a very under par Real Madrid should still qualify for the Champions League. I don't think they're going to win La Liga now. Mm. And I don't think they're going to win the Champions League now. But if they can just say, right, top four and we write this season off, wait for next summer. I think it probably fits him more than most other clubs in Europe. Mm. A lot of football to be played before <laughs> then. Um, yeah, and, and in that sense, uh, what are we expecting from Liverpool in the intervening period? You know, they're away at what will be a hostile um, uh, stadium in, in, in Belgrade. Um, they've already taken the diplomatic option of not travelling uh, with um, Shakiri because of the you know, Albanian gestures and everything else. Um, do we Will we see the best of Liverpool in the Champions League, do you think? Yeah, I, I strangely, I think, I think we will. There's, some, um, there's something about the way that it has been accepted that Liverpool are going to challenge for the title this season and they have, um, they have a robustness about them that they did not have last season. It, last season it felt a bit like, sure, they're going to score loads of goals but they're so flaky at the back, that's not a championship winning side and so it proved and they were very much in the shadow of a team that had got it spot on at the back and in, in midfield and the front. Yeah, they had got it right, Manchester City. But now, because Liverpool are being regarded with, 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 with respect and having the right balance of players to, to make a, a go of it against City, rather than that implying that, well, you know, they're going to have to... This is the year they concentrate on the Premier League and not Europe. I think it gives them a sort of a sense of being relaxed in Europe because they're so used to Europe and they know what it takes. Klopp knows what it takes. The club knows what it takes. The fans know what it takes. They got to the final last year. And for all that the focus has been on the Premier League, that still is very annoying, the way that final <laughs> unfolded because it, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't that they were outplayed. It was that fate meant that they lost their, their talisman very early in the game. In the most, and that, there's a sense of, well, if... An under par Liverpool could get to the final and then be, you know, circumstances mean they didn't win it. What about this new, beautifully composed, balanced Liverpool? And, you know, with, with Virgil van Dijk starring in every game, not just, not just attacking flair, it's, they've got everything. So I think, I actually think, I wouldn't have said this on day one, but I now think 
they've looked so serene in Europe. I, I think I think there's every chance they could get to the final again. I think the other thing that Jurgen Klopp may well appreciate is that this is not an easy group that they've been put in. They are being challenged right from the start. You know, they beat the top seeds in the group in the first match day. Um, they lost away at Napoli, but should still battle back to qualify. And that can make a difference. You know, we've seen in previous years where, where both Barcelona and PSG have, have cantered through their group, have strolled through with kind of between 14 and 18 points, and then suddenly come up against a, one of the, you know, the challengers and been challenged in a way that they hadn't been, both in their domestic league and in Europe. The fact that Liverpool have been challenged, that they will have to fight through this group, I think gives them more steel than than less. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, Klopp is being kind of dealt a very difficult hand in that he's being, as you say, expected to be the challenger to Manchester City and expected to replicate last season's Champions League performance. And that's going to be incredibly difficult. He, he, I think one of the things about Saturday was, you know, I wrote after the game, he's kind of being asked to manage expectation now rather than hope. He's always been a manager, Klopp, where mm. he's had to manage hope at, at Dortmund and at Liverpool until now. It's been a kind of almost pluckiness to, to his team. And now he's having to do something different, which is manage expectation because people expect a title challenge. So drawing away at Arsenal is seen as two points dropped, not one point gained now, which is, is ludicrous, really. But it shows how far they've come. And that's in an extraordinary season. First time for 40 years that you've got three clubs unbeaten after 11 games. Uh, you're almost in an environment where you're dropping, a po dropping two points at Arsenal or drawing at Arsenal to turn it on its head is something that people are saying, well, that's going to cost them the title. That's the sort of result that's going to cost them in the end. It's a really difficult league now, isn't it? And the whole city scenario has changed everything. I, I, th I, think, I think Arsenal are going to cause every team problems and getting a point at the Emirates was, was something that I think we, we might all look back on and see as that was the moment Liverpool won the title rather than threw it away. And, and if, if that goes for Liverpool, it will also go for the other challenges. It's, you know, it, it's no bad thing. I was at the game, um, I was at the Emirates, and it was quite clear at the end Klopp was. Do you not agree? He was happy yeah, with the was, point. Yeah. He was happy with the... He brought Matip on. Mm. He was happy with the point. He could see how it was going. Arsenal are... They are, they are different this season and they've been growing in stature... They put in an excellent performance. They had, they had energy, pace, guts, determination, a, a, a self belief that mm. they could win the game. I don't think, I don't think a team challenging for the title going to the Emirates under a new manager with that array of talent and that attitude, and getting the point is is a bad thing. And I can see, I, I can see, like Guardiola did at Anfield. There are times when you think, actually. In terms of just thinking about what this does to morale, I, a point is good here. Mm. Were we all guilty of underestimating Emery? Um, I think we were. I think I think we were in a situation where nobody knew because there'd been such a dynastical manager in charge for so long, and that it became impossible to separate Arsene Wenger and Arsenal, and therefore we were not sure how much taking one of those away from the other was going to, you know, was going to pan out. Um, I think. The problem Emery has is that more than any of the other managers, Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, Jose Mourinho, he is going to have to rely on coaching players 
as much as buying them. You know, you look at those central defenders he found this summer, and yes, he brought Socrates in, but other managers have been able to buy ready-made replacements for those players, and I don't think Emery is going to be able to do that. So I think we should... I think we should be, be very wary of making him a victim of this early success because I've been incredibly impressed with how they've played. But if they do suffer a lull, if they do suffer a few setbacks, I think we have to say, well, hang on a minute. Look at the, you know, look how, look at the smoke damage in that stadium and in that, that club when, when Wenger departed and look at how Fyremery's taken them very quickly. The one thing he has done is added steel in central midfield because Lucas Traer and, and Granit Xhaka on Saturday, I was worried for, for Arsenal going into that game. But to see them both kind of herring around the pitches, these firefighters, is something that we've not seen enough from Arsenal in big games over the last three, four years. So that was that was a huge improvement. But I don't think they're there yet. Yeah, Identical question, but just change the identity mm-hmm. of the subject. Have we underestimated Sarri as well? You know, he's done fantastically well. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly. Because he, he, he arrived almost as a comedy figure, you know, former banker, chain smoker, problems with being not very PC with his language. And uh, I love him on a touchline. He's desperate for a cigarette. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> desperate. And when he's writing his notes, I'm sure he's writing must buy extra pack of <laughs> fags when I leave. Um, yeah, no, but he... And I, I, I went to Chelsea and did a sort of chatted to various players and asked them, you know, what, what, is, what, what is he... Is that different background a help or is it a bit weird? And they all like the fact he's different. It's a breath of fresh air to have someone with a different attitude. He talks to them like people. He likes a good laugh. He likes to talk about things that aren't football. He likes to talk about philosophy and humour. He likes to add different things. And he doesn't care that he might not do what the club of standard managers do. He isn't bothered in the least that he's never won anything. Mm. He's just someone who is very relaxed being who he is. And the players genuinely seem to really have a good time being there. They like him. And, it, and, and often when you assess a manager, it's about what came before. So Conte was very, very strict, really strict, and didn't like a laugh. So players have responded, because it's the same group of players, more or less, and they're very, very talented, and who wouldn't do well if you had Eden Hazard in your team? <laughs> but he's, he's, he's just given them a boost with his personality and just changing just changing coaching a little bit and making sure that they enjoy playing the football they're capable of playing. Mm. Yeah, one of the, obviously the great feature of the week was the the aftermath of the tragedy at mm. Leicester. Um, you know, we, we began by talking about that bond between supporter and, and his or her football club. Um, you know, some extraordinary things at, at Cardiff. I just want to, there was an observation by one of the listeners, uh, Paul Fry, I just want to, basically share. He said, I had to go past the King Power on Sunday morning. It had the look of a match day. So many people around. Morrison's nearby were selling flowers and balloons by the truckload. These were clearly fans who never felt taken for granted mm. by Vishai. Um, a week on, what's your sort of enduring lesson or observation from what, what that club's gone through? I think there were times when when decisions that Vishai made and the owners and the directors made that were unpopular at Leicester. I think the management of Claudio Ranieri's sacking, I think um, in, in a, the same way, Craig Shakespeare's exit. But what they always tried to do and what they always promised they would do is, is be transparent and communicate the reasons behind their decisions. And they always did do that. You know, they always said... We know this won't be popular, but this is why they've done that. And if we go back to what we were talking about at the start of the show, 
it's not even so much the European Super League that's so distasteful. It's the fact that this is all so clandestine, that's done with no communication, with no canvassing of, of, of what supporters think. That's what gnaws away at, at supporters, and that's what ultimately will make them not want to go to matches, that they feel they're not even being listened to. And I think that's what, what Leicester got right. Um, obviously, you know, when Vishay came into the club, there was no sense that this was going to be a, a title-winning team. Of course there wasn't. How could there be? And that was a very happy, um, not coincidence, but a very happy chain of events to, to happen under his stewardship. But it comes from communication. It, not, no, no leader, no manager can ever be universally popular and no decision they make will be universally popular. But if you are transparent and you you treat, you know, Asin's saying about Sarri, treating the players as people, if you treat the fans as people, not commodities or customers, then they will, you know, they'll back you on things. And, and that's what he did, to my mind. Mm. I think someone, you look at someone like Casper Schmeichel, his response, you know, has been visceral. Obviously, you know, saw, couldn't be shy on the way into the helicopter dashed out after, immediately afterwards. Um, he's almost become the voice of that club's conscience in many ways. Um, is Leicester going to be a club reimagined by tragedy? Will there be an impact for the rest of the season and maybe seasons to come? I think that's a difficult one. I think, I think Vishay's son, Top, will from what I can gather, because I don't know him, from what I have heard, will be very, very, very keen to make sure he does something to honour the memory of his father more than... So to keep it going, that the worst thing you could do would be to let grief define it in a negative way so that it started to crumble or the people forgot what they were doing under the previous regime. He, he, would, he would like to build on the foundations of all that made it good. And in a way, the fact that it's been, a, that his death has been greeted with such emotion, I think is very telling, because there must be an awful lot of owners out there, whether consciously or subconsciously, thinking, oh, I wonder what my legacy will be. Because why do you own a club anyway? Presumably it's because you've got a desire to impact on something. You want to make a difference, don't mm. you? You want to say, I can make this club better. Ego. Or, or, I mean, occasionally, occasionally you might see an, a, a potential to strip it and make money. But most, most, most people buy a Premier League club because it's an extension of them. They're showing the world another side of what their wealth can do. So the fact that they got it right at Leicester when they bought the club and they, they got rid of the debt and they made promises and they kept them, they, they exceeded them. They said, we'll make this club top six club in Europe, ah, ah, actually we're going to win the Premier League and be in the Champions League. You, if you're the son of someone that did that and you're already involved in the club, it seems to me what's going to happen is that you, you put even more focus of the family into the club and you make sure that, you, that no one can ever turn around and say, that's how it was, but it's not now. You're, that in five years' time, people will look back and see it as yet another era of growth that will... It took just to honour honour the man, probably. Mm. Talking of honouring men, final question, really. Uh, Wayne Rooney mm. um, is going to get his farewell appearance against the USA, we're told, on November the 15th. Is that a gimmick or due respect? I, I, it's a funny one in that when I first heard the news, I um, thought, this is going to really annoy me. 
I'm going to stew over this and it's going to really annoy me. And it's actually annoyed me less than I thought it would be. The only, the only way it will annoy me is, is, is if it stops a player who should have a cap. And the obvious answer to that is Callum Wilson, who has deserved, done enough this season, above and beyond expectation to merit an England call-up. And if he doesn't get one because of it, that would annoy me. But in our last two squads, Gareth Southgate has named four goalkeepers. Now, I'm not for a minute saying he's done that deliberately because it creates a handy way of dropping one of those goalkeepers and bringing in Wayne Rooney, but it is a natural fit to do that. Um, I think it's probably a nice thing. I don't think we can judge it now because the question is whether two years down the line, we'll look back and go, was that a bit odd that we mm. played a, an international friendly you know, just to honour Wayne Rooney's final appearance when he'd already retired 18 months earlier? Maybe. But uh, some people have reacted and said, well, you know, this is all about building for Euro 2020. I don't think this performance or Wayne Rooney playing against America is necessarily going to shape how England do in that tournament. I, so, it, yeah, it's an, weirdly, it's annoyed me less than I thought it was going to. It's annoyed, it's annoyed me more than I thought it was going to, actually. <laughs> I think it's in, an insult to the United States team. I have always had a soft spot mm. for, but no one else does. So it's always like rubbing it in. Well, you're not very important on the world football stage, so we'll do it against you. So, you know, this is a proper game for them. They're rebuilding, for goodness sake. They went through a terrible time. Probably still are. But um, I also don't see the point of giving him a cap. He's got plenty of them. He, he, just, just devoting the match to his foundation should be enough. Mm. If it's really about the money, if it's really about raising money for charity... And that's the publicity. He can turn up if he wants to and he can do some sort of gimmicky keepy-uppy at half-time <laughs> or wear a silly hat and ask people to put their hands in their pockets. I do not see any need for him to actually get on the field. That, that looks like indulgence. Mm. And if it's supposed to be about raising money, then there are other ways to do I, that. I do, I do wonder what Gareth Southgate makes of it all because last year he spoke at length and as forcibly as he gets about the idea of silly caps and... Mm. And he retired Wayne Rooney. Yes, and so. he has spoken about wanting to pick predominantly young players and play them together as much as he can. So I hope that the FA haven't frog-marched him into this. Well, on balance, why not? Charity benefits from a meaningless match and we get the chance to say farewell to a great player. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. <laughs>